Welcome to episode 267 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and an awesome supportive community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? I, well, I will have you know that I am a winner of an Australia Day Award. I saw that. Congratulations. (laughs) That is so exciting. Now, what exactly were you winning? What was the category? Uh, Well, I won, yeah, so for the, I was at the uh, Shoalhaven City Council Award Ceremony on the 24th of May and uh, May, January, see, I know, I'm fast forwarding, this is how, this is what happens in the holidays on the 24th of January and I won the award for outstanding contribution to the arts and culture in my area. Wow, that is awesome. Did you get a little trophy or a... I got a trophy. I got a trophy. I got an amazing kind of crystal trophy arrangement that looks like we put it this way. I'm going to keep it next to my bed in case I need to like bang burglars over the head with it or something because <laughs> I think I would do a huge amount of damage. Um, so yeah, I got that and I got several certificates and the wow. boys were very chuffed. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Mm. Did you know you. that that was happening? No, I was quite astonished. <laughs> <laughs> I got invited to the. I got invited to the thing and I was like, oh, okay, I've never been invited to this before. And uh, I got nominated um, yeah. and a big shout out to Jane Beattie Sim who actually nominated me for the award. Yeah. Um, and I I really honestly, like generally speaking, these things go to people who've, you know, been doing stuff in the region for 50 years and stuff. And so I really honestly, I mean, I really was quite astonished to win. So I was pretty chuffed about the whole You've thing. You've done really. a lot in the region. You were on the organising for the festival down there and you've been doing so much down there. Well, I have. And I guess the other thing is that I, I talk about the region. Um, like obviously I've got the podcast, I go overseas when I talk about the inspiration for the Mapmaker Chronicles um, and to you know a lesser degree, the Adaman Cipher, I talk about the environment around me. I always use it as part of my um, examples when I'm talking to, when I do uh, workshops for kids, um, I talk about, you know, I use examples of what's around me when I'm talking about how to describe places and um, so yeah, I don't know. Well, there was obviously something I'm doing right because they, um, they gave me the award, which was, you know, very, very exciting. So anyway, I'm an award winner. What can I say? I'm, I'm doing it. I'm out Congratulations. there. Congratulations. Winning well, awards. <laughs> you were holding, while you were holding a trophy or a, you know, a really nice, cool, very heavy award. I, this week was holding a piglet. A piglet? Yeah, it's so cute. Mine didn't wriggle at all. (laughs) Why? Why were you holding a piglet, Val? Tell the story. It's so cute. So uh, as you know, I'm the curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival, which uh, goes from the 1st to the 10th of February. So if you're in Sydney, make sure you go check it out. You can find all the information you need at sydneylunarfestival.com. Anyway, we had the media launch this week and it's the year of the pig. So there were many things that were pink and many things that were pig inspired, including a bunch of little piglets. So at the media launch, I was holding this little pig. He was adorable. And, um, you know, there was like Channel 9 and AAP and the Herald and they were all doing their thing and taking photos and uh, doing interviews. And the pig was really cute, but I only realized when I got back to the office, hmm, I kind of smell like pig. <laughs> oh, no. Seriously? So I did a little wash in the bathroom. <laughs> are there photographs of you with said pig? There are photographs of said Oh, you'll pig. have to put one in the show notes or something, okay. Val, because clearly we all need to see this. And was the pig's name Wilbur by any I chance? I didn't get to know the pig extremely what? well. There were six there and there was the cutest, cutest one, which I wanted to hold, but apparently he was the biggest squealer and that probably wouldn't have come across that well you know, on the television. <laughs> so I held a different pig who was very well behaved and a well very behaved cute. pig. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I think you win, Val. I think that that story is the winning I story win, of the week. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a little more unusual and unexpected, but I'm not sure if I win. 
<laughs> but anyway, let's move on. We are up to our last lot of questions because you guys asked so many fantastic questions in when we held our Ask Me Anything. So we're going to get stuck straight into the questions. So the first is from Belinda, who has said, Valerie, I've been wondering for a while, what is the story of the start of the Australian Writers' Centre? How did you start it and why? Okay. Um, That's a good question. Yeah, right. Well, it started in 2005 and basically many people will know that I didn't start my life out as a writer, my career as a writer. I started my career as an accountant, but I had always, and that's just because I don't even know why I never had a burning desire to be an accountant. It was just something that happened through process of elimination. I didn't even think I would uh, want to do the subject accountancy. It's just that I wanted to do the other subjects less when I enrolled in my economics degree. But it was kind of ridiculous that I did that in the first place because I loved English at school. I loved writing. I won the English competition five out of my six years at high school and yet it never occurred to me to become a writer, even though clearly that was my passion. I was always reading, always writing. And so I... um, when I was an accountant, I went to many, many, many writing courses and um, different organizations and centers and stuff like that. And they all, I learned a lot, yes, but they all varied in quality in terms of, and, and no one center had everything I wanted or everything that I needed. And they varied from very good courses to really bad courses. So well, I wanted to create the Writer Centre, the Australian Writer Centre, to create the sort of Writer Centre that I wish had existed when I was transitioning in my career. And I wanted uh, the level of quality to be consistent and extremely professional throughout. I didn't want to be operating out of a, you know, little hall in the back of nowhere. I wanted um, the support staff to be professional and friendly and knowledgeable, which, you know, I think our team is great. Mm. Um so, yeah, that's why, because I wanted to create, I, I searched high and low and believe me, I'm, as a journalist, I'm pretty good on research. I searched high and low for the the ideal writer centre and it didn't exist. So I wanted to create the that very writer centre that I wished had existed because I knew there were many more people just like me wanting something like that. That's all. Okay. So Donna has asked, I would love to know if your publisher holds world rights to your book, but has only published you in Australia, are you or an agent with good overseas contacts able to try and secure publishing deals in other territories? How does all of this work? Hmm. Okay. Good question. Well, um, so first of all, I think we need to put the disclaimer out there in that we're not experts in in contracts and, and things like that, but essentially um, if you sign world rights to your book to your publisher, it's your publisher's responsibility to, to try and secure publishing deals in other territories. So before you sign world rights over to any uh, publisher, it's always a good idea to find out what, if anything, they would plan to do with said rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the rights deals for uh, both of my series um, have been you know, brokered through my publishers, Ashet. Um, and when the when I was signing the contracts with Ashet in the first place with Ashet Australia, the uh, my agent and I discussed, you know, what we would do with the rights. Um, and the advice I got was that, you know, under the circumstances, because Ashet does have a very, very good foreign rights department, um, that I would, you know, if unless I had an absolutely stunning solid plan as to what I was going to do with them outside of that, then, you know, my agent's advice at the time was to go with Hachette. And, you know, I haven't been unhappy with that. I've obviously got deals in the US. Um, the books are available in the UK. They're in, uh, map makers are in, you know, a couple of other foreign territories as well. So, you know, as far as it goes, um, that's that's one way of going about it. The other option that you can do is depending on the agent that you have and what their sub-agent situation might be, they may decide to hold you know, you, you may sell only Australian New Zealand rights to an Australian publisher and you may hold on to all other rights, in which case the agent that you have um, or their sub-agents are responsible for selling those other rights into other territories. So 
basically the deal is done before you sign world rights over. If you have signed the world rights to your publisher, they hold them and it's up to them to um, take those rights to rights fairs around the world um, or to, you know, through through sub-agents that they may have in different in different territories or through, I mean, obviously the big, uh, the big publishers will have, um, you know, houses in the UK, houses in the US, et cetera, and it may be that your rights go to those houses if they're interested. So your Australian house would sell to the UK house or the UK, uh, US, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, but, you know, again, this all happens before you sign that original yeah. contract. So if you are signing world rights over to a publisher, you need to have a very strong idea of what that publisher is going to do with those rights because otherwise, as you say, um, they could just publish you in Australia, do nothing with your rights, mm-hmm. and, you know, they still hold them. And also in many cases they may hold world rights but only for a limited time. So That's they right. may have Australian rights in Australia for as long as they publish the book, but they may say, oh, and we'd, we'd like world rights for two years, which gives them two years to have a go, two years yeah. to try and get some kind of deal elsewhere, after which – you, the, the rights probably revert to you. It'll be in your contract and if you're unsure, the first place to start is asking the publisher, the pers- the, the, the people who you've signed the contract with, um, mm. you know, exactly what uh, what is covered and what the time period is. All right, so. So get it. My next piece of, imp- uh, like I just really want to say this up front, don't yeah. sign a contract without getting some advice yes. from somebody, from the yes. Australian Society of Authors. Yeah. Um, the agent Alex Adset has a has a service where she will, um, for an hourly rate, just give you advice on the contract that you have been offered and l- talk you through it so that you have yeah. a very clear understanding of what it is that you're signing. Don't sign a contract without understanding where those rights are going. For sure, yeah, great advice. All right, and. Um, Alyssa just said, there are so many great questions. The episode may have to go for three hours. Well, it probably went for more than three episodes anyway. Mm. Um, Hello to Jill. Hello to Elle. Question, final question from Sal. What mistakes have you made and learnt the most from? Oh, that's a really good question. Gosh, so many mistakes. You learn from every mistake. Like everything you do, you learn something different from. Um, I think the biggest mistake I ever make is staying too long at, at any party. It's just why in real this is why in real life I try to get out before it gets really, really messy. Um, oh. because I tend to I tend to um I tend to stick with people believing that people that everyone feels the same way about everything as I do and they don't. So I think you basically have to remember that every single thing that you do in publishing outside of writing the book and even I guess with in in case of writing the book, um, is that you the you are your own business mm. and you have to know what's going on at all times and you have to make decisions based on what's best for you at the time. That would be what I would say. And yeah. you, Val? Um, I'm staying too long at a party at the moment because, you know, I don't know, were you into Outlander? I'm sorry to change the subject, but... <laughs> Were you into Outlander? Do you know what? I've seen your I've seen your posts about this and I haven't said anything about this because I I didn't want to burst anyone's bubble. So I um I <laughs> So the posts in case people you've missed it, it, it listeners is that I'm very late to the Outlander party because everyone raved about it as in the television series on Netflix. Obviously I know that it was a book first. Um uh, and but everyone raved about the TV series, and I've watched episode one, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll get, a, I'll keep going. Episode two could not have been more bored. I'm gonna keep going to episode three, and I've asked people on social media, I've late to the party, but should I actually go to another party because this isn't happening for me, and sh- should I stay or should I go? So, Al, your comments. Oh, you need another party. <laughs> You really need another party. So the thing that made me laugh about this is that I read Outlander like when it was Diana Gabaldon's series that started with Cross Stitch. I started it years ago. I read it years and years ago. Mm -hmm. And I read it because a friend of mine, and we talked about this before, a friend of mine pressed it upon me and Mm -hmm. told me that I would love it. And I read the back of it and I was like, you've got to be kidding. A time slip 
you know, mm. romance series essentially. And look, I've got no issue with romance. I, I've read a lot of romance. I yeah. write romance. But it just like the whole time slip thing has never been my never been my party. Yeah. And um, I anyway, I put it off. And then, and then I was there one weekend and this is in the days before social media, like this is how far back we are, and I had nothing better to do. Like I was at mm. home by myself, obviously, like the builder was off doing whatever. And I thought oh, it was all I had in the house to read. The, you know, e-books were not a thing. And so I picked it up and I read the whole thing within 24 hours. Like I, really? and it's not a small book, right? It was like completely engrossed. And then I proceeded to read the entire series mm-hmm. from start to finish, and I really enjoyed it because I quite liked the historic aspect of it. She's written mm-hmm. very vivid characters. They were like it was great. It really was a great book series. I loved it. Like it really came to life on the page. So, <laughs> fast forward a few years. And um, a friend of mine had the series on DVD and she was talking to me about it one day. She's like, oh, I just love it, you know. And I'm like, I've read the books, you know, I don't really need to go there. And she goes, no, no, you've got to watch it. You've got to watch it because the guy who plays Jame, I can't think of his name, um, anyway, whoever he is, gorgeous man with red hair, blah, blah, blah. See, redheaded men have never really done it for me either for probably (laughs) obvious reasons. However, he's a very good-looking man. I I will give you that. So anyway, so I go, okay. So I put it on, you know, everyone's gone to bed. I pop it on the thing and I watched the first episode and I was like, oh, okay. So then I tried the second episode. I'm a bit like, yeah, we tried the second episode, got halfway through it and just went, no, I found another party. It just was, it's just, it's that, I don't know, there's some, some kind of level of schmaltz in that series that is not in the yeah. books. Right. Yeah, that's it. That's all. Uh, you know what? If you're into massive romancy things, fantastic. Go for it. It's a, it's a beautiful looking series. But mm-hmm. like I knew all the plot points because I'd read the, like there wasn't even any surprises in it for me. So mm-hmm. I didn't even have that to keep me there. So I just, no, I moved on rapidly. Okay. Sorry. You went to another party. So right. knowing you and knowing your taste in, viewing as I do <laughs> this is this is not it Val go to another okay. party yeah <laughs> seriously go next door all right so that's one mistake that I've made I invested myself into three episodes <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. and now it's time for me to move on <laughs> what else have you done what mistake did you make the most what have you learned the most from do you know what? I think I've made so many mistakes and I just have this incredible capacity to block them as to erase them because obviously I'm too embarrassed or I, mm. you know, felt too disappointed or whatever that I don't retain that information. And obviously it gets retained somewhere in my DNA in that I try not to make the same mistake again. But I have, I honestly have a hard time remembering them, not because I haven't made them, I've made because I remembered the feeling but I think in as a survival skill or something I I tend to block it from my memory (laughs) or they certainly aren't at the fore for me to call them up very easily because that's just the way I operate I know that sounds a bit pathetic and not a very good answer but sorry that's the truth So parties and erasing them from memory, that seems to be the sum (laughs) We better move on quickly. All right, let's move on. So want to say congratulations to all the wonderful writers who took part in Furious Fiction January. You can check out the winning story and the shortlisted favourites by visiting furiousfiction.com.au. If you're new to Furious Fiction... Well, you're in for a treat. Join us for some short story fun on the first Friday of every month. What we do is we unveil a new creative challenge and you have 55 hours. So it gets unveiled at 5 p.m. on the Friday, on the first Friday of every month. And you have 55 hours to give us your best story of 500 words or fewer. And the winner, yes, there is a winner, takes home $500. It's absolutely free to enter. And it's one of the best things you can do to give your imagination a workout. So the exciting thing about Furious Fiction this month in February, in the coming month of February, is that it's Furious Fiction's first birthday. And we're celebrating with an awesome challenge for the 1st of February. So sign up at the Furious Fiction fan club so that you get notified as soon as the competition opens so you have your whole 55 hours. Go to furiousfiction.com.au to sign up and – It'll be really great fun and you could win $500. Now, our giveaway this week is that you could win 10, well, one of 10 double passes to the new film, 
If Beale Street Could Talk. Academy Award-winning filmmaker James Baldwin adapts his acclaimed novel in this beautifully told love story set in 1970s New York. Childhood friends Tish and Fonny have fallen in love and are expecting their first child, but their future plans are derailed when Fonny is arrested for a crime he didn't commit. Relying on familial and inner strength, Tish and Fonny must fortify themselves against a world intent on tearing them apart. So uh, If Beale Street Could Talk will be released on the 14th of February, but you could win one of 10 double passes. Entries close the 4th of February. Just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? Yes, I'm ready, Val. Like, stop clapping your hands, really. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't make me any more excited if you clap your hands. You know that, right? One day I'm going to get a word that's just going to blow your socks off. Mm -hmm. Okay. No mick. Now that's G-N-O-M-I-C. No mick. No mick. No mick. Yeah, do you know what it is? No, I don't know. Okay. I want to say it has something to do with garden gnomes, but I know you're going to tell me that's not true, that's so I'm just correct. going to leave it with that. <laughs> this might sound like a word that describes something to do that, you know, looks like a garden gnome, but it's not. It relates to aphorisms, which should be a word of a week themselves, which mm-hmm. are short statements embodying a general truth. So you might say he mumbled gnomic prophecies about the impending doom of the organisation. Mm. Gnomic. But so you see that in a sentence and you still I've st- I'm still thinking that he's sitting in a corner mumbling like a garden gnome. Like it's just Do you know what I mean? Like you know with his little hat on and his beard and everyone's ignoring him because he's just muttering like a garden gnome. I suppose. No? Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. Okay. All right, let's <laughs> anyway, move on. Let's move let's on. Let's move on. Who is our writer in residence this week? Well, this week we have a very interesting conversation to be uh, unfolding before us because we are talking to Laura Sieverking. Now, Laura Sieverking is an interesting person for two reasons. She writes great junior fiction. But the interesting, what I thought was one of the more interesting aspects of our discussion is that she writes junior fiction for one publishing house and works as a senior editor of junior fiction for a different publishing house. Mm. Yeah. So we had a bit of a talk about how that worked um, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Laura Sieverking is the Australian author of two series of books for children, the Royal Academy of Sport for Girls and her new series, Amelia Camellia. Laura has spent the vast majority of her career working in publishing as an editor and today works as a senior editor at Scholastic Australia, managing picture books and junior fiction. Her own books are published through Penguin. So welcome to the program, Laura. Hello, it's good to be here. All right, so let's go back to the beginning and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how your first book series came to be published. Yeah, so, I mean, I've always had an interest in writing. Even as a young child, I was writing little series. I remember my mum bought me a hardcover notebook and I was writing a really interesting serial about a princess and a bear and their friendship. So that was even at a very young age. So I was always really interested in writing and publishing um, but it was uh, into editing that I went first. So um, I started in editing over 15 years ago, started in legal publishing, um, but always had that interest in uh, writing for myself as well. Um, it wasn't until uh, quite far into my career, actually, that I had had the thought of becoming a published author in and of myself in, in my own right. So Um, What I did at the time, um, I was working in educational publishing um, as an editor for uh, primary fiction and literacy uh, books, and I thought about running my own series. So I wrote um, the Royal Academy of Sport for Girls, and I submitted that to, at the time, it was Random House. And like many people, I just submitted it to, um, you know, the open email address I had at the time, the slush pile, if you will. Um, I didn't have any sort of formal connections with anyone at Random House. I think a lot of people think I must have um, somehow got my book published through friends in the industry, but that's not actually the case. I actually um, sent my manuscript uh, to, to that email address and then 
got a call a little bit later um, from the publishers there saying they were interested in the series. So that's how the Royal Academy of Sport came to be. All right. So tell us a little bit about that series, the Royal. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I've got a frog in my throat today. The Royal Academy <laughs> of Sport for Girls. Like, was that the first thing that you ever like really wrote as an editor? Uh, sorry, as an adult, or were you? Um, had you been all the time that you were sort of working as editor, were you tinkering away with different ideas and things or was it just like, you know what, today I'm going to be a published author? <laughs> um, I think that's the first series that I committed to writing from beginning to end with the thought of thinking a bit more commercially, um, thinking I want to get this out. Whereas in the past I have written lots of little things. I've still got things sitting on my hard drive that I've never quite finished. I've always um, had ideas and, and been writing along the way. But this, you're right, this one was one that I thought, oh, no, I think this one could work really well commercially. So what I did was I wrote the first book. I wrote um, The first book is a gymnastics book. So the idea is that this, there's this school, the Royal Academy of Sports for Girls, where these girls can go and they can um, be doing their studies alongside competing in whatever sport that they're, they're in. Um, so I chose gymnastics because I was a gymnast growing up and that was kind of really central to my identity as a, a young girl growing up. So that was quite easy for me to write because I had a background in that area. So when I wrote that first book, um, it was very much writing from experience for me. It's got a lot of me as a child in it. It's a lot of the experiences in there are things that I experienced in the gym. So it, it was that kind of um, yeah, you're writing from my own heart, I suppose. And at the time, I didn't know whether this series would be all gymnastics books. I think that's what I thought it would be originally. Um, but when I pitched it to the publishers, I said I was happy for it to be either a gymnastics series the whole way through, or if they preferred, I could do different books in different sports, focusing on different girls. So, and that's that's the the um, the track that they wanted to take the books down. Um, so. Which, which were, I was completely happy with that. So they're kind of standalone books. They have stories with different characters in their own right, but they do reference each other, but they really are sort of standalone books. Right, yeah. but they're all linked by this overarching sort of concept of the of the sports academy. So were you when so when you said so you wrote the first book in its entirety, but you actually mm. pitched it as a series right from the beginning. So when you actually submitted it, you pitched it as yes. a series right from the start. Okay. Um, and do you think it yes. was your background in, I mean, I, I know you were working in educational publishing at the time. Mm. Do you think it was your background in that that made you think that this was a commercial way to go about doing that? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I, I'd attended lots of writers' festivals and things like that as well. And, and just um, that idea of knowing where there's a gap in the market is really mm. important. Mm. Um, so I remember at the time, um, my daughter at the time was sort of about six, so she's a bit under the age group, but it's four. Um, so at the time, she was about that age, and so I was kind of in that world of, of children's fiction, just looking at things for her. And I'd seen the, um, the success of Dance Academy, which was made into a, an ABC TV series, and then I think a movie as well, actually. Yeah. And then I was remembering back into my day when um, we had Saddle Club and those sort of horsey books. Um, and so I just thought, oh, you know what, there's, there's not a, a lot in the market at the moment that's um, sort of more broadly sport, specifically gymnastics, but also more broadly other sports. Um, since I published those books, there have been a few more sort of netball books and cricket books, but at that time there wasn't a huge amount for sports outside of dance and horse riding. So that's where I kind of thought, oh, okay, you know, I know this, I know this stuff and I like writing it, but I also think that there's a gap here and I was able to kind of put that in my pitch, which I think really helped. And so what, what sort of, um, what, were they, they were published in, first published in 2017, is that correct? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And how did you, so how did you decide, so what, what age group would you say that these books were pitched to? Yeah, um, I think I was writing them for, they're probably around nine. Nine to ten was kind of the age group I was thinking of. Yeah. But um, they're set in high school. So the girls in the book are in year seven. So yeah. I've actually had really lovely feedback from some parents of um, reluctant readers who are yeah. kind of around the 12-year-old age mark who are really enjoying them. Yeah. Um, but having said that, they're not long books um, and they're not difficult and the content is not inappropriate. Like there's nothing sort of really edgy in them either. So I've had parents with kids as young as sort of, 
seven saying that their kids are reading them, enjoying them as well. So really it's kind of sat across anywhere from seven to 12 has been enjoying them, yeah. And how did you decide, did you decide on that age group before you started writing? Like did you think to yourself, I'm going to pitch this at nine-year-olds um, or was it just sort of like, well, they're going to be in year seven and then you work kind of back from there? Yeah, a little bit because I wanted it to be a high school, So I, and, but I didn't want the girls to be too old, so I didn't want to write YA. So mm. I knew the girls in the book would be about 12, 11, 12, year 7, first year of high school. And then just from my experience in publishing, even in educational publishing when we do literacy fiction, we always um, have the main characters sort of slightly older than the reading age because children do like to read aspirationally and read up. Um, you know, read about people who are just in that age group slightly above them. So I thought, oh, well, if the girls are at 11, 12, then, then really I think the 9 and 10-year-olds are going to be the ones who really enjoy it. Okay, so now let's talk about your new series, which is called Amelia mm. Camellia. Um, why don't mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? It's a younger series than the, the Royal Academy. Um, so how yep. did that series come about? Yeah, um, this one came about, I, I've had discussions with my kids, and I have a 6-year-old and 10-year-old, and, you know, we always sort of discuss, oh, if you had a superpower, what would you want to, what would you want to have, you know? And, and kids always talk about they'd love to fly. But the other one that, that always comes up is they'd love to be invisible. Mm. So they love that idea of being a fly on the wall or being able to sort of listen into things that they're not supposed to. Um, so that kind of idea. Um, so the idea for me kind of came out that what if she wasn't, she's not invisible in the sense that she's not there. She's um, able to camouflage into her environment. So when she's having strong emotions, when she's either frightened or very angry or, you know, having those kind of really strong feelings, she um, camouflages into her environment and then becomes invisible. So early on in the book, she, she has no control basically over it um, in, in the early stages. And as the books progress, she starts to kind of, work out what what it is that's triggering her powers and she's kind of battling to learn how to control them. Um, but that's kind of the idea behind the whole series is she can become invisible and with that power she can um, so she solves a mystery in one of them. In another one she uses it to help her friend um, and rescue her friend in another one. So, yeah, she's using those powers for good really. Okay, and so how did you decide Amelia was – because she looks to me like she's written for about the six to eight – kind of market would that be about right yeah um so how did you decide she was younger and how did you decide like how did that sort of you know is that something again that you work out in the concept stage when you're sort of starting to put the whole idea together yeah yeah so I I came up with the idea first um and that was pitched to my publisher um and it was actually through discussions with my publisher where we decided what age group we thought it would be, be best for so I was kind of relying on their expertise in that um, I did pitch it, do we want it to be a slightly older, more of a mystery series, you know, for the sort of Friday Barnes age group um, where she's using her power for that sort of thing. But they thought just the magical element um, in a real world context is something that that younger market really loves. They love, yeah, yeah. Seeing, every, they love seeing everyday things that they can relate to. Um, you know, their world. So Amelia, some of it's set in her home, some of it's in school. Um, so stuff that they can really relate to, but just with this little twist of surrealism or magic um, is something that that age group really enjoys. So so it was really with the help of the publisher that I sort of honed in on which age group we thought it would be best for. Okay. And again, this one is a, um, a four-book series as well. There's a mm. two out at the moment, I think, and two on the way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So with the kind of length of series stuff, is that how how is that sort of decided at the beginning stages? Like, do you go in and say, I see this as four books or does the publisher come back to you and say, look, let's do four and see what happens? Yeah, yeah, more the latter probably. So um, I, I wanted it as a series. I didn't ever imagine that it would be a standalone book. So we, we had pitched it as a series and quite often publishers will sign up. Sometimes they'll sign up two or three and sometimes they'll do four or five and, and sometimes it's a matter of, um, see how the sales go and then whether the series progresses after that but sometimes it's it's also up to the author and whether you think that that series has kind of you know sort of rounded out and you feel creatively that it's come to a natural close so it's a kind of both things it's a mix of it's a mix of sales and it's a mix of how the author feels about where the series is at creatively okay so what do you think is the key to writing a good junior fiction series like as an editor you're obviously seeing a lot of this stuff yeah where do you think most authors go wrong when they're pitching you know into these sorts of age groups yeah I think you just have to really 
be familiar with the age group and the market and what's out there. And if, I mean, if you've got kids, that's helpful. Or if you know kids, you can talk to and sort of um, understand what level those children are at. That's helpful. But it's also a matter of going out there and, and looking at the books that are pitched to that market and having a look at what kind of vocabulary is used. What's, what's the kind of general word length, um, of page, you know, page extent of these types of books? Um, that's helpful in the beginning. Um, I think as well, the story needs to be simple enough that you can have sort of the, the climax and the drama in there and it can round out nicely, but it, it has to be achieved in, in a specific word count. So mm. that really is the challenge of junior fiction, to be honest. Um, if you're writing sort of older fiction, older fiction can range from 20,000 words up to 100,000 words, really. It doesn't really matter. You write the story until it's done sort of thing. But this junior fiction market, it's, it's a lot stricter in its word count and page count. So you need to make sure that what the story you've got can um, sort of organically unfold um, but in a in a logical way for that page count. So, so what is the I mean, what is I, the sorry what is the word count? So on your Amelia Camellia six to mm-hmm. eight sort of year old, what is the word yeah. count on on a book in that series? So that that one's seven thousand words, right. uh, approximately sort of seven yeah. to eight, and that would be what I would call um, a, a confident independent reader. Yeah. Um, okay. So they're probably on par with um, perhaps Belinda Morell's Lulu Bell, that sort of age group. Yeah. So they're not down at if you look at other early fiction, Billy B. Brown and Ella and Olivia, I, I'm the editor on Ella and Olivia, actually. Oh, um, <laughs> so those books are early fiction, very, very early fiction. So children as young as five are reading them. Yeah. Um, they're, they're a lot smaller, so they're probably about 2,000 words. So okay. um, normally for writers, I don't, I don't like to sort of be too prescriptive in, oh, this is your word count, but I think in junior fiction it's important um, just because if you hand me a... a 30,000 word manuscript and tell me it's for a six-year-old well sure there may be a couple of six-year-olds who could handle that but that's not realistic for the market so yeah you do have to be a bit careful and your royal academy of sport which is slightly um slightly older obviously what what sort of approximate word count are we looking at there that one's 20,000 words, which yep. is actually, um, that's, that's quite um, short for sort of a, a middle, older primary age fiction. Yeah. I think, um, I'm just thinking of sort of Alice Miranda and those types of books, I think would be up around the sort of 50, 60 yep. maybe. Don't quote me on that, but they're probably somewhere around there. So, so these are relatively short. They're supposed to be kind of enjoyable, quick reads. Um, yep. They're not kind of these overly meaty yep. <laughs> um, books. But, yeah, that's what they're at. So is it, so you said that, you know, obviously like, keeping within the you know page expectations of your readership is mm. is one of the challenges um getting a like getting a satisfying story into some of those shorter yeah. word counts as you say yeah um are, are among the more, the more difficult things about writing junior fiction are there any other sort yeah. of key points that you would say you know to, for people to keep in mind when if they're looking at sort of this is the area that they're drawn to yeah I mean, thematically, like I was saying, children in this age group like to see their world reflected in in their books. Um, So you will see a lot of these junior fiction series are set mostly in reality. I mean, some aren't. Some are are much more into fantasy. But a lot of them really are sort of reflecting back the kids' own reality. And then maybe it will have these sort of other elements of fantasy or magic or whatever it is. But just the kids at that age, they, they want to be able to identify with what they're reading. So as long as you have that um, sort of human experience in there, um, characters going through what they're going through. And as I said, that can be in more of a fictional or non-fictional context. But, um, for example, in Amelia Camellia, she, she's very much trying to deal with her emotions. That's kind of the background story going mm, on in there. Mm. Um, and she she's a funny character because I... I'm loving all the, the strong girls we're seeing in, in fiction at the moment. It's, it's absolutely brilliant um, seeing all these strong female characters. But I wanted to have a character that is strong but introverted just to kind of give that message that, you know what, you can be a really strong girl even if you're an introvert. Um, yeah. Strength is not necessarily extrovert. Yeah. So Amelia is uh, naturally an introverted little girl. Um, who has different scenarios that have come up that she has to deal with. In the third book, which comes out in April, she's, she's asked to be the narrator in the school play, and that for her is just a horrific idea. Um, so, you know, her, how she, she deals with those things. So, so, you know, having these kind of themes that kids can identify with, in Amelia's case, it's 
overcoming um, some of the, the uh, well, I say pitfalls, but some of the, the aspects of, of an introvert that they have to deal with. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to explore with her character. So you, you're obviously, you, you enjoy writing series fiction. Mm. What is it about it that draws you to it? Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I have got other sort of um, little bits of writing and manuscripts sitting on my hard drive that I haven't really progressed. I'm not all of them are series, but um, I just, I do love, with a series, I do love the kind of sense of progression that you can have, um, sort of, a, it's more of a slow burn. You can have it over the whole series that rather than sort of in an intense, um, you know, one book. Uh, so, and particularly with junior fiction as well, I think um, really developing a character does sometimes have to happen across quite a few books just mm. because, of, as I said, the word the word count and the page count is, is low. Um, and, you know, kids at that age, they need to be able to have the achievement of starting and finishing something in a relatively short amount of time because they mm. are only just brand-new readers. Yeah. My son's only six and he's um, just sort of opening up the world of independent reading and he needs the reward of finishing a book. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I think works really well with junior fiction and that drew me to doing a series was that sort of, you know, developing a character over several books so the children still have the achievement of finishing a book, um, but then we can still draw out the, the character over a, a longer period of time. So when you start, um, say, let's just look at Amelia Camellia, seeing as she's you know, mm. looking so dazzling there for us. Um, do <laughs> you, have you basically, like when you're pitching that concept, so you've got the idea yeah. maybe for the first book, um, have you yeah. then pitched out her character growth over four books? Um, so have you scoped that out for yourself and then worked out it, the arc for each story within that? Or has that developed as you've written each of those books? Like yeah, you're planning all that in advance? Yeah, no, with Amelia, her character development has kind of happened a bit more organically. It's kind of happened over over the series of the books and, and with my editor as well. She's saying, oh, maybe we could do this and that and just to, just to sort of give her a bit more depth in the next book and the next book so we're getting to know her more and more. So in terms of the, those kind of intricacies of her character, um, that's definitely been something that sort of happened on the go, whereas um, when I was pitching it, I did have, uh, the basic storylines for three books, I think, at the time. The fourth book sort of came to me a lot later. Um, but the three, the first three books I had, those ideas pretty set. And the first manuscript I'd had, I think it was pretty much written, actually, when I pitched it, yeah. Okay. So because you've taken, as we discussed, the two approaches with your two different series, like with Royal Academy, you write each book from a different character's viewpoint. So they're yeah. related but different. With Amelia, you've yeah. got the same main character for each story. Mm -hmm. As you've, yeah. like, you've now completed those two series, so, or you're yeah. to the point where we've got four books in each, but what, what do you find as a writer are the pros and cons of each of those approaches? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways, uh, it's, it's easier for me to write more from the perspective of the character and you kind of get into their head and, and do it that way, which is how I felt um, with the Academy series. I felt like I got in the head of each character and this was very much from their point of view. Whereas Amelia Camille, it's third person narrative and it's definitely about her and we are in her mind quite a lot, but there is that kind of, I don't know, a bit more of a step back and, mm. and I'm developing her kind of, as a third person, not in and of herself. Um, so, I mean, it's just a it's just a different gear, really. It's not it's not one. I haven't I didn't sort of find one easier than the other. I don't think I I kind of just switch gear and then you're in the sort of this new way of writing and and you know as with a series you it's you're very quick to kind of um, get into that flow mm. um, in terms of. Of, of writing from whether you're writing from sort of first person or third person, that sort of thing. So, mm, okay. yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed both. They've been different, but I've enjoyed writing them both. All right, so let's have a little chat about this sort of idea of the, of being senior editor for one publishing house and writing <laughs> yeah. for another publishing house, which yeah. is, you know, is there ever a sort of a conflict in that? Like how do you, how do you manage the, that basically? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people do. Um, get a bit of a shock when they, they presume I write for Scholastic. So when I say, oh, no, these are actually Penguin books, they kind of look at me 
with this look of shock because I know in a lot of other industries you could never yeah. be working for two opposing companies. But I mean, the thing to know about publishing is, firstly, is it's very it's a very small industry. So I, I know a lot of people in the various publishing houses, and we've all kind of worked for each other. And you know, so it, it is a very small world. One of my other colleagues at Scholastic publishes with HarperCollins, so you know, it's it's not something that's never done. Um, but I think for me, I generally speaking, I at Scholastic, I have my editor hat on, and that's what I do. I don't pitch manuscripts to them. Um, that's that's my editor world, and then I've got um, my sort of writing world, which has been Penguin. It's also been very helpful because I am actually assigned author with Curtis Brown Australia, so I've got an agent there. So right. I think that as well just gives me that little bit of a distance. You know, if if ever I did need to deal with Scholastic in that way, she would be dealing with the writing side. But having said that, I I tend to sort of separate the two just so it's nice and clean. <laughs> nice and neat, right. Yes. Um, so the next question we must ask, of course, is how you manage to fit all of these things and a family into a 24-hour yes. day. I mean, where yes. are you making the time to write your write your books? Yeah. So the Academy series I wrote, I wrote um, at least the first book a couple of years before they were published. Um, and at that time I was freelancing from home and I was with um, my children at home. So... I think my youngest was still um, at home and my older one might have been just in kindergarten or maybe just before. So at that time when I was first concentrating on that book, I was freelancing, which gave me a bit more time to mm. kind of sort of juggle all of that. Um, it's been a little bit more of a challenge um, with Amelia Camille because I, I, I am back full-time working now. Um, so, I mean, having said that, junior fiction is lovely in the sense that the word count is not quite as high. I mean, the creative process takes a long time, but the actual writing, yeah. you know, it's not the same as writing, um, you know, a hundred thousand word huge book. Um, so I, I have been able to juggle it, but yeah, it does mean, I mean, if you want to do it, you have to, um, commit to some writing on the weekend or sometimes writing at night or, you know, taking a whole weekend and, of saying, please, husband, have the kids the whole weekend and just <laughs> deal with Do them something so with these just... people, please. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, that you, so you know, you have to be aware that, you know, most authors, particularly when they're first starting out, will have other full-time jobs, you know. It, it takes a long time to be an author in your own right and be having that as your income and having that as your, your you know, full-time work. So most, most authors I know at least started out with doing this on the side. So you have to just be open to making that time and committing to it. And, yeah, sometimes it's, it's difficult and sometimes you don't want to do it, to be honest. Um, mm. So, you know, but you just got to carve out that time and, and make it a priority. All right. So how do you promote your work when you're also working as an editor? Like are you doing school visits? Have you got an online presence? What kind of stuff are you doing to actually get the word out about your books? Yeah, it's really hard if you're working full-time, really, really hard because, you know, the publisher, they're excellent. They, they try to give me as many opportunities as possible, but there's only so much I can do um, when I'm working full-time. So when the Academy Series first came out, I was still um, doing some freelance work, so I did have a bit more flexibility and I did do school visits for that series. Um, but with Amelia, it's been a little trickier. So um, um, I do have a book launch um, happening uh, on the 9th of Feb in Mossman at Pages and Pages. Um, so that's that's on a weekend. So that's a Saturday. So I can I can manage that. Um, and, you know, if time's sort of like book week, um, I can use my annual leave if I need to, to, to do those school visits. But, yeah, it is, it's, it's really tricky. It's really tricky. I wish I could just sort of sign up for a, a three-week tour, you know, to, to go around with some of the other authors. But that's just not sort of a reality for me at this point. So what do you do instead? Like how do you um, – are you doing anything? Like are you, are you trying to sort of get the word out in, in different ways? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, these, these kind of bookshop appearances on the weekend, um, so book signings and, and those sort of appearances. And then um, I've got a Facebook, an author Facebook page where I try to share as much as I can on there. Um, Penguin are really good. Penguin Kids put they, – they had some stuff up on Instagram with some sample chapters recently. That was helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of tricky. So, you know, it just, um, you know, you, you, you do what do you what can, you can, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Do what but you can. It's, it's all anyone it's can not, do, it's right? Not easy, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So, um, we are going to finish up today with our infamous last question, which of course is your top sure. three tips for writers. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the first one is probably super obvious. You need to write. It's um, it's about, as I said, carving out that time when, and, and just committing to to your craft. So sometimes that will mean writing when you're not feeling particularly um, inspired, but just, just write when you can, you know, and, 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 and things like writers' festivals and writing, writers' classes, they are really helpful. So, you know, if you've got the opportunity to, to go to those kinds of things, do, you know, learn from the experts, learn from your peers. Um, mm. So that's really good. Um, number two, I think just knowing what is out there is really important. So, Yes, you do want to write about what you're passionate about, but if you want to be published, you do need to know the market. So go to your local bookshop, see what's out there, know what your book is like, and then know what your book is not like, what, what's not out there, where's the niche. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's really important. Read, read widely from other, other authors who have been successful. So not so you can sort of copy what they've done because it's obviously been done, but just knowing knowing what's out there already and where your manuscript fits is really important. And then um, I think this is sort of more about pitching than it is about actually writing, but, um, but um, just, I suppose, knowing the publishers as well. Um, so know we, what each publisher likes to publish and then you can pitch appropriately. Mm. So if you're trying to pitch a picture book to a publisher who doesn't really focus on picture books, then you kind of wasted a bit of time there theirs and yours so so I think as a writer knowing not just the market but who is publishing what is really important so you know like the Scholastic they're really passionate about the school age market because of, of their book clubs yeah. um so you know that that's a really that's a good publisher for those sorts of books if you're doing a an early ABC one two three type book maybe that's not the publisher for you to pitch to so yeah. know know what you're what you've got and and what everybody's publishing that's what I'd say Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Best of luck with Amelia Camellia and all of those other things that you're doing. And um, you. we will, uh, well, you know, maybe some of our, our listeners will be pitching to you. So, you know, <laughs> brace <Yeah>. yourself. <laughs> that's all right. I'm always looking for the next big thing. So Fantastic. That's, that's, that's wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course, How to Write for Children and Young Adults, will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. That was a great interview, Al. She's always really interesting to chat to. Um... I thought what she said about finding your own space in the market was particularly useful and relevant. I'm not sure um, how how do you think what do you think is the best way for authors to do that? Well, I think it's like Laura said, you you've got to go to bookshops. So you have to have a look at what's like if you particularly if you're looking at if you want to write that junior series kind of um, fiction. Uh, so she's in the sort of six to eight-year-old mm. end of town, um, which, you know, is very much a series-based world. Like it's kiss, if kids find something they like in that in that world, then parents want to buy 20 of them. Like it's really – we see it in your kids' read, your mm. kids' next read group all the time. My kid likes X and has yeah. read every single one. What can I get that's the same? So they're looking for that kind of stuff. So what publishers are looking for is something that can be a series – but also something that is is different to what's already there because you know there's no point in just going in there and and kind of recreate you know recreating exactly what's already on the shelf you need something with that with a bit of a point of difference so Laura's gone with her series the new one Amelia Camellia she's gone with something that's um you know she's she's chosen a heroine who is slightly or a main character who's slightly more introverted than you know what she had noticed was on the shelves um so she's gone with that and she's gone with that idea that one of the main superpowers that kids want to have, like, you know, if you ask a bunch of kids what what superpower would you want to have, they want to be invisible. And the reason they want to be invisible is because they want to be able to, you know, like it allows them to 
you know, scope out what's going on without anyone knowing they're there. They get to observe, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's an interesting perspective for a character as well, because a character who is invisible and observing uh, can report on everything that goes on around them without having to interact as well. So, you know, if you've got an introverted character, it's perfect, isn't it? So you've got this sort of like this melding. But you have to basically, you've got to go to a uh, bookshop, you have to look at what's on the shelf, and you have to think about how your idea is going to actually like bring something new. How it's going to take up space on the shelf? By you know, is it is it? Have you got enough there that you can write four books? Because you know, really, that sort of age group, you're looking at a probably four, you know, to start with, um, because they're only thin, they're only little stories. Um, and you know, Laura talked about the fact that her character developed over the the four books. In some cases. Uh, publishers actually just want the character to be the same because readers just want the character to be the same. They want to know what to expect. So you need to get an idea of what the expectations are for that market and how your your uh, book mm. is going to fit in there. And it's quite interesting, you know, because I'm tutoring at the moment uh, for the Australian Writers' Centre's Writing for Children and Young Adults um, course, and I'm watching that class develop as as time goes by. And it's really quite an interesting thing because one of the most difficult things about writing, particularly for that younger age group, is the voice. You need to get the voice right because you're essentially, you know, most of the herald, most of the main characters are somewhere between seven and ten. And so all your references, all your descriptions, everything that you talk about in that book has to relate to the world experience of a kid that age. And it's not that easy to do because you have to take out all the sophisticated references that you've learned in the years from 10 to however old you are now and go back to what does this kid know? What don't they know? It's more about what they don't know. And you have to then use what they don't know and what they do know to create the picture of the world that they're in. Um, developing that voice is actually, it's a real skill and it takes a lot of practice. So while you're at the bookshop working out where yours is going to fit on the bookshelf, you need to read all of those other books that are there <laughs> to get a sense of the voices that that are, are working, what's working well. Yeah, great advice. And if you want more information on the course that Alison just mentioned, uh, how to write books for children and young adults, just go to writercentercomau slash children. That's writercentercomau slash children. All right. So we're almost at the end of this week's episode. Al, what would you, what will you be doing this coming week? Are you going to be winning any other awards? Uh, pretty sure there are no awards in my future in this week. Yeah, no. Um, no, I know. Well, I've got, you know. This one was um, a surprise. I mean. Well, true. The only award I'll be winning this week will be for getting my son through his first week at high school. So my youngest son started oh. high school this very morning, oh. went off in his big socks and his big shoes. Um, so that was that was interesting. Uh, so we'll was be doing that. Was he? Yeah, he, yeah, he was. God love him. But hiding it with bravado, as boys do. And I had two of his little mates that were dropped off here this morning and I took them all up to the school together so that they were able to bolster each other's courage. And they were sitting in the back seat. It was so funny. They were sitting in the back seat and they decided that they were going to run today like a fortnight skirmish. So the plan is that they will be quiet to begin with. They are just going to – it's going to be like bush camping. They're just going to be observing to see where the enemy might be and what they might need to do and how to get to higher ground and – and uh, they will be observing for a while and then they're going to, you know, make their assault on high school a little bit further down the track, which I thought wasn't a bad wow, plan. Wow, cool. Mm, mm. Big week, big Fortnite. week. Everything comes back to Fortnite, though. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'll be doing. What about you? What are you doing? You've got a what? festival to run. Yes, got a festival run. Um, well, I will be fulfilling a childhood dream, not a childhood dream, a um, long-held dream. Um, mm -hmm. I am a fireworks tragic. Right. I don't know, but We've I've always loved these. them. I know yeah. that some people are not into them, but I am into them. And I think they're awesome. And I think fireworks on Sydney Harbour are awesome. Have not missed a New Year's Eve fireworks in forever. Even if I'm in another state, I will watch it on TV. I'm that into fireworks on Sydney Harbour. And on the first night of the festival, I get to design the fireworks. What? I know. You're in charge and of the fireworks? I can't even. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. How do you – haven't you got this planned already? Like have you decided yeah. already? Most, yes. We're just finalising, but yes. Wow. I'm a bit excited about that. Even it's like a, so you are it. like person in charge of fireworks? 
Well, I don't pack them. No, no, <laughs> I don't but put you're the explosives together. No, clearly. <laughs> you're not even lighting the wicks. I get that. But you are the person deciding what, what Just fireworks like, you know, the, will be seen. It, yeah, it's like. It's so fun. I love fireworks, like, mm. beyond. Are you just going, is it just going to be all big, 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 big? Well, they the all represent the something, actually. They all symbolise oh. something. So um, they all symbolise different stories in the that are part of uh, the Lunar New Year. Yeah. So there's a story behind every single firework. Wow. Yeah. That's really it's, exciting. It's exciting. And then the fireworks end with the the, the Harbour Bridge is going to be lit and there's basically the Harbour Bridge through the entire festival is going to be lit in um, a series of um, different lights and they in each of those lights also represent something symbolic or, or a story that's associated with Lunar New Year. So wow. I must document that somewhere. <laughs> you must yes, document that somewhere. That would be quite on. an important thing. And just out of interest, will your new friend, you know, Wilbur, the pig, will he be there on the night? I don't think so. He's probably mm-hmm. going to go home to sleep. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Wilbur Fair enough. Well, you enjoy that. I'll look forward to seeing how that all works out. So please don't, you know, come be coming into work with your eyebrows singed or anything. <laughs> Where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And what I'm doing, in case you're interested, during the festival is doing a whole lot of behind-the-scenes stories on Instagram. So you'll find them in the stories and highlights section on my Instagram. And uh, you will find me at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, make sure you connect with both of us in the Facebook group, which is free for listeners. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.